0: Bienvenue and welcome back to the land of desire. I'm your host, Diana, and this week we're continuing our Petit Tour de France, exploring the mysterious thrilling and often hilarious French countryside. As we retrace the route of the original 1903 bicycle race, we'll swerve off the main roads and into the hidden villages, hamlets, and lonely woods in which most French people lived for most of French history. Along the way, we'll examine a local meal at each rest stop, which represents the closest relationship between a community and its land. This week, we'll continue our journey from the starting line in the outskirts of Paris by heading south. Along the way, we'll pass through the heart of Burgundy to the region of Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes, where the cyclists were at last allowed to rest in the great city of Lyon. Historical France was a study in contrast between her internationally renowned, glamorous cities and her isolated, impoverished countryside. Adolphe Blanqui once called his fellow French, Two different peoples living on the same land, a life so different they seem foreign to each other. Village and city represent two completely opposite ways of life. Nowhere was this better demonstrated than the regions surrounding Lyon. Lyon is an ancient city, founded by the Romans, known for 2,000 years as a hub of commerce and culture. Lyon is famous for its silk and its cuisine, and a large chunk of the city is designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in its own right. For centuries, Lyon held her own against her neighbors to the north. And yet one must only slip outside the boundaries of this mighty hub in order to disappear into another world entirely. Passing through the wilderness of the Morvan, the backwardness of Mercant, and down south to the mysterious Dauphiné, the cyclists of 1903 explored a land which was intriguing, exotic, and shocking to the elites back home in Paris. At the edge of the so-called civilized world, the Tour de France was about to slip off the beaten path. In 1748, an intrepid surveyor employed by the Cassini family to help map the interior of France set up his equipment deep in the backwoods of the Ardèche. It had been a long, lonely journey for the young man. In town after town, the surveyor stepped cautiously into a new village, sought out a local authority, and hoped for cooperation. Presumably, the young surveyor would have stopped in Lyon for new provisions and a bit of civilized company on his way to the nearest sliver of uncharted France. Lyon was, by the 18th century, a dazzling city, full of entertainment for bored and weary travelers. As our old friend, Ninian Pinkney recounted in his travel memoirs, the society at Lyon very much resembles that of Paris. French wit, French vivacity, and French gallantry are seen in perfection. Back then, a different kind of tour de France passed through town. Young craftsmen and apprentices learning different trades would circulate around the country and during their Tour de France they would pick up the specializations of each city. The companions of this original Tour de France passed through Lyon in order to perfect their carpentry and to enjoy the hustle and bustle of urban life. Lyon was a sophisticated city with tradesmen, military officers, politicians, aristocrats and artists mingling at an ancient crossroads which linked together all the corners of the French interior. Lyon was another major artery of the nation whose citizens followed the headlines and made some of their own. Yet just outside the city limits, as the fine roads and beautiful architecture gave way to isolated hamlets the modern world remained at arm's reach. According to Balzac, political events and revolutions never reached this inaccessible country. It lay completely beyond the limits of social stir and change. Passing through the city limits, I wonder if the surveyor looked back, dreaming of just one more hot meal before descending into the lonely frontier. For to enter the Ardesh was to leave the world behind. The villages of the valleys were cut off, without roads or bridges to reach them. Nearly 100 years later, someone, somewhere, would plan to build a road in the Ardesh, but this was still a far-off dream for an 18th century visitor. As one peasant wrote, We had not the slightest notion of the outside world. Beyond the limits of the neighborhood and beyond the known distances lay mysterious lands that were thought to be dangerous and inhabited by barbarians. For the unlucky surveyor, then, the Ardèche was a wilderness. The contempt in which French city-dwellers held the peasantry was matched only by the contempt in which the peasantry held the French city-dwellers. As one historian wrote, City dwellers did not understand the rural language, despised the peasants, exaggerated their savagery, insisted on the more picturesque and hence backward aspects of their activities, and sometimes compared them, unfavorably, with other colonized people in North Africa and the New World. Parisians called their own countrymen vulgar, hardly civilized, their nature meek but wild. Is it any wonder that the peasants should resent the intrusion of these outsiders? And everyone was an outsider. One peasant explained that anyone who came from beyond the familiar radius of 10 or 15 miles was still a foreigner. It wasn't just that the peasants hated highfalutin city folk. It's that the appearance of city folk rarely spelled good news for the peasants. Life for the rural Frenchman was hard. To quote one writer, so much misery, so much fear of menaces known and unknown. Life was endless toil and drudgery, punctuated by periods of starvation and illness. Resources were scarce, scarcer than they needed to be, because, as one historian put it, Cities were condemned as places that wantonly drained the countryside without regard for the suffering this caused. Peasants didn't hate the city dwellers simply because they were different. They hated the city dwellers because the city dwellers bought all their food. The area between Paris and Lyon contained some of the richest farmland in the country, including the region of Burgundy. Yet, peasants were forced to sell everything except the meager rations they needed to survive. The summer months were devoted to slaving away in the fields, while the long winters were spent trying to expend as little energy as possible without freezing to death. Let us consider Ninny and Pinckney's description of a social dinner in Lyon. The company make no hesitation to visit every room in the house. Every room is accordingly lighted and prepared for this purpose, the beds thrust into cupboards and quarters, and the whole house rendered a splendid promenade, most brilliantly lighted with glass chandeliers and lustres. This blaze of light is further increased by reflection from the large glasses and mirrors which are found in every room. Next, let us consider this passage about the Meconese, who lived just slightly north of Lyon. The winter evenings were long and cold and lonely. Fires had to be husbanded, candles and rushlights too. Everything cost too much. Adequate heat and light were almost unthinkable. During the frigid winter months, Maconay's women, when they had finished their housework, went into the stables for the veillées du jour, So after the soup, they hastened to curl up in a pallet in the dark, sharing the animal heat of one or several neighbors, presumably asleep, or took refuge in the stable, or repaired to any other place where they could find a little warmth. The motif of animal warmth appears time and again in descriptions of peasant life in this region. Livestock weren't just economic investments— They were company and warmth in the midst of a cold and lonely world. While the hostesses of Lyon invited the neighbors over to sit in front of the fireplace, only three hours south at the beginning of the Alps, winter blockaded families for six months a year. To the end of the 19th century, most men, women, children, and beasts had had to live that half year out crowded together in the stable, Table, benches, coal stove, perhaps three or four beds with two or three persons sharing each. Between the beds goats and sheep, calves in the middle, and at the back the horses, cows and oxen. Pigs were relegated to the corner, closest to the door and farthest from the bed. As winter drew on, the air grew more noisome and garbage turned to manure underfoot. The only way to survive such desperate circumstances was to make as little movement as possible. As one report from 1844 observed, the peasants, having repaired their gear, will take to bed and spend their days in it, pressed against each other to keep warmer and to eat less. They weaken themselves deliberately so as to refuse their body nourishment it doesn't seem to deserve since it remains inactive. For desperate peasants, on the edge of survival, the intrusion of outsiders might signal the upset of a delicate order, which kept them all alive. To outsiders like the Surveyor, such isolation and suspicion looked insane and superstitious. But the peasants weren't crazy, they just knew that outsiders rarely meant any improvement in their own lot in life. Outsiders weren't usually looking to help, and anyway, how would they know what this community, which they so despised and looked down upon, would find truly helpful? Villages which showed up on the king's map were villages which the king called on for taxes, votes, military conscription, or worse. Up in the mountains, down in the valley, far off into the fields, the peasants lived a hard life but at least they were far from the prying eyes of the state. Once you made it onto the radar of a group of bandits, a bureaucrat, or even worse, a military provisioner, your family's winter pantry would be raided to feed an army off fighting somewhere for something you didn't understand. In the Morvan, farmers didn't need to cluster together for protection, as in the rest of the country. Their land was so desperate and scarce and difficult to cross, that bandits skipped it entirely. As one historian noted, until the advent of the railways, economic isolation was both a weakness and a strength. Centrally located villages which grew desirable crops may find themselves bankrupted by a bad market or a hungry army. Perhaps it was better to stick to the humble chestnut, unwanted and unloved and unlikely to be appropriated from you by the state in the midst of winter. When one official began stomping into the backwoods after the revolution, he found that as soon as a large village and even a town felt itself under threat, it destroyed all its bridges. And so... On that hot summer day in 1748, the young surveyor found himself in hostile territory. He entered the village of Les Estables, which may as well have been a different country. Even a 150 years later, another explorer would write of Les Estables, when one arrives on the plateau, the faces of the people one meets have nothing in common with those of the inhabitants of the plain. Many mountain dwellers here have never exceeded the radius of a few kilometers where they walk. To go further is for them to leave the country, a big and difficult business. If this is the state of the locals today, we imagine what they were in the last century. In this village, men who worked on Sunday, paid peasants to light fires at specific times, erected strange stones and wrote down everything they could to find out about the countryside and its features, could only be a sign of terrible things to come. And it is for this reason that on that hot summer's day in 1748, the people of Les Estables hacked the young surveyor to death. Ten years after the death of the surveyor, a new phenomenon made its debut in Lyon. In the neighborhood of La Moulatière, a humble cook opened a unique sort of dining establishment. The great Renaissance-era humanist Erasmus once wrote how, upon entering the city, the Lyonnaise mother comes first to greet you, begging you to be happy and to accept food. Now, hundreds of years later, one of these Lyonnaise mothers decided to take the cooking skills she developed in the kitchens of well-to-do families and make them available to everyone. She, along with a generation of similarly trained home cooks, opened bouchons, so-called for the bunch of straw which hung outside, advertising humble, hearty fare for working men. Many of these women grew up in the small, impoverished villages outside Lyon, and they knew the local produce in their bones. What happens when you take someone, what happens when you take someone who has spent their formative years trying desperately to transform the most abysmal scraps of food into something edible, and give them access to a rich marketplace and a well-to-do family's budget? The answer is, you get a master chef, or in this case, a generation of them, the famous Lyonnaise Mothers. These women could transform anything into a work of art. Eel stew, fish served in cream sauce, even tripe were elevated and perfected. Their food served the hungry weavers of the Lyon silk factories, but they also served those traveling members of the original Tour de France. Those hungry, mobile men made the Lyonnaise mothers famous and wealthy. Under the tutelage of the Lyonnaise mothers, the creativity and scrappiness of the countryside married the natural wealth of the region's agriculture to produce a cuisine which competed with that of Paris herself. By the turn of the 20th century, Roads and railways touched even the isolated corners of Macon, Bourgogne, the Acer and the mountain villages of the Alps. But some aspects of life hadn't changed. The peasants were still starving. In the 1890s, the Maconais were still eating bread rubbed with garlic, potato pancakes to save wheat, and buckwheat wafers. In the Morvan, it was potatoes, beans, groats, chestnuts where they were available, and beastly bread. Over in Velay, potatoes were the common fare and bread a luxury not eaten every day. When our first Tour de France cyclists were making their way through the Ardèche in 1903, they were passing children eating their one daily potato and a jug of milk. Yet society was changing and for enterprising peasants, the world was not so far away as before. Young women who had spent a life making a meal out of moldy chestnuts seized the opportunity to do more with better and trekked out of the farms, the valleys, and the mountains to catch a train. One such woman would impact the world of French cuisine so heavily that her reverberations are felt today In 1895 Eugénie Brazier was born in Bourg-en-Bresse, next to the chestnut eaters of Mecon and about 40 miles north of Lyon. Eugénie's parents were peasant farmers, and she first began working in the fields at the age of 10. She ate the food her family could scrape together, Many years later, Eugénie recalled a meal brought to her by her mother while Eugénie tended the pigs. A broth of leeks and vegetables, cooked in milk and water, enriched with eggs, and poured over stale bread. I'd never eaten better. She only attended school in the winter once the farm chores were finished, and when she found herself pregnant at 19, opportunities were scarce. Like so many unwed mothers before her, Eugénie made her way to the nearest city, where she worked as a nanny for the Milliat family of Lyon. The Millia family were middle class and they ran a bakery. For the first time, Eugénie had access to all the ingredients she could dream of and her culinary skills blossomed she left the service of the Miliot family and joined the kitchen staff of a female-only restaurant run by one of those famous Lyonnaise mothers, working until she had the confidence and the savings to open her own restaurant at the age of only 26, named La Mère Boisier. The great Waverly Root of Gourmet Magazine once wrote, "'The cooking of Lyon fits the character of the city, it is hearty rather than graceful and is apt to leave you with an overstuffed feeling. Eugenie begged to differ. On opening day, she served crayfish with mayonnaise and pigeon with peas. Over the course of the next 12 years, Eugenie's reputation grew and grew until she counted French presidents and prime ministers and even Marlena Dietrich herself as customers. Marlena was partial to Laguste Belle Aurore, an entire whole sweet lobster drenched in brandy and cream. Okay, maybe it is possible to get overstuffed on Lyonnaise cuisine. Yet one dreamy dish stood out above them all, the dish that causes Lyonnaises of a certain age to drool when they hear her name, the dish I can't really pronounce, A young chicken is stuffed in a pig's bladder and poached. The leftover stock is mixed with egg yolks and thick cream and spooned over the chicken. Finally, Eugénie would slip a luxurious treat under the skin of the chicken, shavings of black truffle soaked in aged cognac. My arteries clenched reading that out loud and I think I just gained 5 pounds. You've come a long way from leek milk and old bread, Eugénie. In 1928, Eugénie paid tribute to her childhood heritage by purchasing an old hunting camp just outside Lyon and transforming it into her second restaurant, Col de la Luire, which lacked running water and electricity and made up for it with incredible cuisine. In 1933, Eugenie Brazier received no fewer than six out of six Michelin stars, a full three for each restaurant. She would maintain all six stars for over 20 years. To date, only one other chef has ever achieved six stars, the great Alain Ducasse, and he has yet to maintain all six for so long a stretch of glory. In the 1940s, a young man rode his bicycle up to the front door of Col de la Loire looking for work. The man joined the kitchen staff as an apprentice, developing his skills, working with the woman he would later describe as a tough and modest woman who knew instinctively how to select the best of us in the same way she picked the best produce. Later, Eugénie's protégé, Paul Bocuse became one of the most famous chefs in modern history. Anthony Bourdain once called Eugénie the godmother, the original master, teacher, chef, force. After a childhood in grinding poverty, subject to the condescension and disdain with which city dwellers held the French peasantry, Eugénie Brazier emerged as a genius. In the space where the city streets meet the dirt roads of the country, the peasant had finally arrived to civilize the city. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. I don't know about you, but I'm hungry. For those of you who haven't done so already... Now is the time to sign up for the Land of Desire newsletter, because for the rest of this mini-series, I'll be sharing recipes to accompany each stage of the Tour de France, and I promise the Lyon recipe will not consist of moldy chestnut soup. A number of you reached out to ask about prior issues that you missed, and I have good news. I've now added an archive of previous issues to the show's website. To subscribe to the Land of Desire newsletter or view previous issues, visit thelandofdesire.com slash newsletter. In additional good news, for those of you who so generously contribute to the Land of Desire's Patreon page, the first bonus episode is here! If you'd like to listen to this exclusive episode... All you need to do is visit p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the land of desire and make a contribution. Thank you again for listening and until next time, au revoir.